Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, hello again, everybody. Pastor Joel here. Welcome to another special edition of the Covenant Podcast as we move through what we're calling Ask Anything Summer. Uh, I hope you're enjoying your summer, by the way. Uh, But we've got a couple of great questions for you today that we're going to deal with. Uh, As I said in the last special edition, we're adding this to our regular weekly podcast because we asked you to ask us questions. Ask anything you want. Uh, there's no really nothing that's off the table here, and you did. In fact, you asked so many of them that I couldn't cover them all in the month of July. And so we're adding uh, three special episodes to try to deal with four or five of some of the more frequently asked questions that I just am not going to have time to get to from the platform on Sunday morning. But I hope you're listening. Uh, happy to be in the studio today with Vince Vaughn and Troy Stangle, and uh, really want to thank them for their work as well as the the rest of our production team. So let's get right to the questions. Uh, We have two of them that we're going to deal with today. And the first one has to do with something called the problem of evil. I got several of these, several emails asking this question in different ways. Uh, If God is really all powerful and good, why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? What do we make of everything? I I think someone even asked the, the particular question of why is God allowing Putin to do what he's doing in Russia. You know, why, why would God, if he's really in control of all things, allow some of the wickedness, some of the suffering, uh, to happen? And it's a great question. It is a question that has been asked really throughout the history of the Christian church. And the church has sought to answer it with a biblical theme called providence. Uh, Now, that's not a term used a whole lot in the church anymore, but I I think even though it's considered archaic, um, I I think it's something we need to look for because providence describes the role of God both in and over all of the affairs of the world. So I want to both start and finish this part of the podcast by just reminding you of a really simple prayer that some of your children probably pray. I prayed it when I was a kid. And it simply begins with a simple phrase, God is great, God is good. Uh, That really is providence in a nutshell. And we have a whole host of different traditions of the Christian church uh, that have expressed this idea of providence in in different ways. So in the Westminster Confession, uh, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in the 17th century, they describe it this way, God, the creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But basically it just says God is in control of everything. He really is great. And then we get to the 19th century and we find a Baptist statement called the Abstractive Principles. And there we read the following, God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, 
governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin. It was good that they put that caveat in there, wasn't it? Because James actually tells us God does not sin. God does not tempt other people to sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. In other words, God is great and God is good. And that's where that sort of audacious claim comes head to head with the presence of evil in the world. If God is great and good, then why is there evil in the world? It's a reasonable question. And evil, by the way, manifests itself in many forms. Uh, We have in one category what we call moral evil, that there really are bad people in the world. You know, everybody, I think there's even a Luke Bryan country song. By the way, if you're listening to Luke Bryan, you shouldn't. But, and there's all kinds of reasons for that, right? No, it's fine. It's not a sin to listen to Luke Bryan. It just means you've got bad musical taste. However, there is one thing that Luke Bryan says. He's got this song, I Believe Most People Are Good, right? And and if you've heard it, it's catchy. uh, It sounds good, but it just ain't true. Um, And it's reflective of a larger worldview that says, you know what, all people are basically good. But you take anybody who says something like that and you confront them with pictures of Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, and and suddenly they're going to need to rethink their position. Uh, Usually that belief, honestly, goes out the window when you first become a parent. Um, And as a church family, we actually believe this goes all the way back to Eden when our first parents decided they wanted to be their own God, and they rebelled in the garden against God's design. If you hear some background and static, by the way, uh, the studio's got a tin roof on it, and it just started pouring down rain. So try to ignore that if you can, and I'll I'll just keep talking here. Um, But there's moral evil, all these things that, that people do to each other. And then there's something called natural evil. By natural evil, we mean tragedies and accidents car accidents, hurricanes, tsunamis, volcanoes, tornadoes, fire. Um, The things that make those events, actually, if we're just honest, so excruciatingly painful in our lives is that they're so impersonal. There's no seeming rhyme or, or reason to it. And so evil at the moral level, evil at the natural level, and then there's finally evil at the supernatural level. The scriptures tell us that there is an enemy named Satan, that he has a host of demonic beings who wreak havoc on our planet and in the lives of people. Uh, that Jesus, when he came to earth, ultimately revealed those spirits to us. And, and we, don't, we don't see much of them in terms of direct activity until Jesus comes. And then all of a sudden they go bonkers trying to stop him. And then you see Christ pulling back the curtain, kind of defeating them, as it were, and in the process, revealing to his watching followers those evil forces. And so evil at all three levels, moral, spiritual, supernatural, and natural, exists in a universe created by a God who claims to be both good and great. And whether those who asked this question realized it or not, that kind of thinking is exactly why they ask the question, because therein lies the problem, the problem of evil, all right? If, if, you, if you put it syllogistically, it, the God of the Bible claims to be both good and great, but evil exists, therefore it would seem to us that the God of the Bible must not exist, because if he did, he could stop it because he's great, and he would stop it because he's good, okay? And, and so it, it's amazing. I mean, and, and truthfully, there's no easy answer to this. 
but I do want to give you a few principles here. Um, the first is this. When we turn to the Bible, God is actually pretty eager to reveal himself as presiding over all things, including evil and suffering. And so while there are many of us who claim to follow him that, that, are, that sometimes we think we got to run for philosophical cover when he goes, well, if God is both good and great, why does evil exist? God actually, everywhere he reveals himself in scripture, remains completely disinterested in getting himself off the hook. He has no desire to be rescued from bad press. He doesn't run for, from it. He takes responsibility for it. Let me read you just a few texts uh, in the scriptures. Job 23, 13, but he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 33, let the earth fear the Lord and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be, commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And then Amos chapter 3, verse 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? That's pretty indicting, except the Lord says this of himself. And what he's trying to tell us in all of this is that God really is great. And when he says he's great, he means that in every sense of the word. So then comes this question, it, if that's true, then is God also good? So let me give you four principles in conclusion here to, to seek to try to bring together this idea of God's greatness and God's goodness. All right. Principle number one is this. God wills evil to exist. That doesn't mean that God likes evil, that God favors evil, that he loves evil. It does mean that he allows it to happen and that he has a purpose for it. Um, if you want the the greatest example of this in the Bible, go to Genesis chapter 37 and just read all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. You'll read the story of a young man named Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was betrayed later on by the wife of his master. He spent years unjustly confined to a prison cell. And now he sees God's purpose in all of that. And, and in Genesis 50 verse 20, he says to his brothers, who, by the way, were the very people who betrayed him in the first place, what you intended, God intended too, because God was seeking to, to keep his people alive. In Isaiah 10, verse 5, we see a, a woe, a warning against the nation of Assyria because of what they're doing to Israel. But we read in verse 5 the words of the Lord, Assyria, the rod of my anger in their staff is my fury. And to be honest with you, one of my least favorite passages in the scriptures, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, where Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked my permission to sift you like wheat, and I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, if I'm Peter, I'm going, yeah, but you told him no, right? Like, you, you're not going to let him mess with me. Actually, Jesus did open that. Why is that? So Because he knew that eventually Peter's going to need to stand and have the courage to preach to thousands of people at Pentecost in Jerusalem and see 3,000 of those people receive Jesus as Lord. And it is this sifting like wheat, this testing that he is uh, enduring 
from Satan that builds his strength. So often we think suffering shouldn't be a part of our lives, but I, I think if most of us, especially anybody close to my age, I'm 51 now, that would look back on their life, and, and, and I'll certainly admit this, my soul has never grown any more than it did when it was under pressure than it did when I was made to suffer in some way or than it did when I didn't know quite what was going on. So, so that's principle number one. God wills evil and he has a purpose for it. Principle number two is suffering, even though it's not a, an essential good, it is an instrumental good. Okay, Romans eight twenty eight says all things, all right, God works all things together for good. What it does not say is that all things are good. But we have to have a faith to believe that, that teaches us that comfort and pleasure are not the ultimate end for us. God is much more interested in growing your soul and developing your character. And again, suffering is a phenomenal indicator of character. It's also a pretty effective builder of character. Principle number three is we're incapable of knowing all the answers. In Deuteronomy 29, we read, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things that are revealed are for us and for our children and our children's children. Both of those are true. On the one hand, God's revealed some things to us, and we see that in the Bible. We, we sense that in the presence of his Holy Spirit, in the person of Jesus. Um, but there are things that God also decides to keep for himself. And in that moment, he doesn't call us to know everything or to understand everything. He calls us to trust him in everything. I think about my oldest son, who's now 23 years old, healthy as a horse, mechanical engineer in Pittsburgh. We're so incredibly proud of him. But when he was first born, he had an infection, and the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so I ordered, or the doctors ordered, and then I signed, as his father, permission for them to perform something called a spinal tap. That is an incredibly painful procedure. So I want you to think about that for a moment. I'm his father. He is days old. He is vulnerable. Um, and I sign a piece of paper making it plain that it is my will that he go through this excruciating procedure. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like uh, to be an infant and go through that? But imagine still, what if Sam in that moment had had the wherewithal as an infant? Thank goodness he didn't. To know not only am I experiencing excruciating pain, but I'm doing it because my father ordered it to happen to me. Now, those of you, and especially in the medical field, but really any good parent knows, yep, that was heartbreaking, but it was necessary. You do what you got to do to find the problem so that you can cure your child. The, the alternative is you might lose your child. And, and so I did this because I loved him. That makes perfect sense to me. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to a kid who's just a few days old, though. And, and I want you to think about this fact. From the perspective of God's throne, you and I are that infant that's just days old. There is so much that he does that we don't understand, that we cannot understand. And so it's okay if we don't know everything or if we don't understand everything. But principle number four is we have to make a choice. Evil exists in the world. God exists, and he has declared that he is both good and great in the presence of that evil. So there's a few ways you could respond to that that reality. Uh, you could respond with denial. 
you could say, well, I don't believe that God exists. Well, why is that? Well, I could never worship a God who, well, here's the question. What if he's really like that? And how arrogant would we have to believe to assume that, you know what, if God, if he were God, he would never really do that. Well, what would he do? Well, he would do what I would do, of course. Yeah, well, we just made ourselves the center of the universe. I'm not sure that's a good idea. In fact, I'm quite certain that's exactly what Adam did, and that's why we're all in the mess we're in. So we could do that. We could deny. We could accuse. That's what Job did. Or thirdly, we could worship. Um, You know, there's no greater expression of the greatness and the goodness of God than the crucifixion. And from every vantage point at which you can observe that story, there's only one conclusion. Jesus was murdered. His life was taken unjustly by crooked Jewish authorities and cowardly Roman ones. And everything from the mockery to the shame and the curse and the pain and the humiliation, all that was ultimately ordained by God. And he did that because it was the will, not only of God the Father, but of God the Son. This isn't God the Father beating up on the God the Son. This is not, when we talk about substitutionary atonement in the church, this is not uh, what Marcus Borg called divine child abuse. This is the first and second persons of the Trinity agreeing with each other to redeem humanity. The first person uh, says to the second person, you will go and suffer, and the second person gladly and willingly submits to that suffering because God loves the world. And so when you're watching people suffer or you're suffering yourself, that's what you have to remember. You know, every tragedy I've ever had to respond to as a pastor, guys, I say I don't know more times than I say anything else when I'm in that home or in that hospital room or or in that funeral home. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. I know that God loves us, not because of what he's allowing or not allowing to happen to us, but because of what he allowed to happen to Jesus. So yeah, I do believe, even though I don't have all the answers, God is great and God is good and he's worthy of our worship. I hope that's helpful to those of you who answered that question. We got another one here about the Holy Spirit. Um, several of those came through, some of them about speaking in tongues and healing. Some of these questions were just about the Holy Spirit in general. We got a couple of questions actually asking, do we teach people how to speak in tongues at covenant? Do we, uh, concentrate on healing? Do we have deliverance services? Uh, or why, why don't we do those kinds of things, uh, at covenant? And of course, a, a lot of that is uh, revolving around the Holy Spirit. So I want to I want to answer, if I can, three primary questions about the Holy Spirit uh, that I hope will be helpful to all of you who ask those questions about Him. The, the first is, what does He do? What is the Holy Spirit? He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. But what does He do? And and the Scriptures tell us there's two important things the Holy Spirit does when we're converted, and four things that He continues to do after we're converted. So the two things that he does at conversion are regeneration. And I'll just give you some scripture verses for this that you can look up. Titus chapter three, verses five and six, which means he creates us new. Uh, Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. The Holy Spirit, scripture tells us, is the one who brings about that new creation. And so All of salvation begins with God giving you and me a new nature, 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins. God makes us alive with that new life. He grants us new desires and passions, fresh anointing to do his will, and a purpose to live our lives. And so uh, the scriptures tell us that that work within the Trinity is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. So I, I would put it this way. All of that can happen even if you don't know the Holy Spirit. You may be ignorant of the Holy Spirit, but you can't be saved uh, without the Holy Spirit. So he regenerates, and then he baptizes. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Uh, another passage, Romans 6, verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so here at Covenant, we practice baptism by immersion after you believe, because we believe it best expresses visually that reality. Um, we're, we're conducting a baptism, but that, that symbol is actually reflective of an actual baptism that the Holy Spirit has done when he gives you a new heart through spiritually immersing you into Jesus Christ. So at conversion, the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart and he baptizes you into Christ. Now, I'll talk a little bit about this in a, in a few moments, but let me go ahead and say this now um, because some of you may have come from traditions that taught something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At Covenant, we believe that happens at conversion. And we believe that because of what we read in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 6. Now, what is uh, once you are converted, what does the Holy Spirit continue to do in your life? Let me just refer you to John chapter 16, beginning in verse 4, and you're going to find four things. Number one, he's going to convict you concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay. Number two, he's going to guide you in all truth. And those are almost like the left and right wings of an airplane. He's going to tell you what's true. He's going to warn you against what's false. He's going to smack you across the back of the head, figuratively speaking, of course, when you do things that you're not supposed to do. Number three, he's going to declare to you the things that are to come. In other words, he's still active and at work in history. And ultimately, he is there to glorify Jesus. All of those things happen when you receive the Holy Spirit. So here's the second question. How do I receive the Holy Spirit? And there's a lot of debate, admittedly, within the global body of Christ about this. Uh, and it's mostly because we, we tend to conflate two different concepts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit on one hand and the filling of the Holy Spirit on the other. And as I've already said, baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 12, that's a one-time experience it happened in the past at regeneration. It brings union with Christ, brings us into the body of Christ. It is never commanded of us to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's in fact a positional act. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been, we believe, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 puts it this way. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And this is why we're pretty insistent at Covenant. If you came, for example, from a Pentecostal tradition, and we love our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. I mean, we love them, and they are our brothers and sisters. But this is one major difference that we have here because many of them will claim that you, you get saved, and then later there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
every single syllable of scripture that describes that experience describes it in a way in which it coincides and is synonymous with your conversion. So we don't think if you've truly come to Jesus that you're waiting on a second experience. But here's what you are commanded to do. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit because that's what brings greater communion with Christ. That's what empowers the, the members of the church of God for service. And it's continually commanded of us uh, to do this. Because it's one thing to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. It's quite another thing altogether to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. I mean, I can be immersed in water and uh, perfectly clean drinking water can surround me all the way up to my neck. But if I never open my mouth and swallow any of it, eventually I'll dehydrate, right? That's what we're talking about. Uh, you need to ingest it. And so if you're a believer, you've already been baptized in the Spirit, but you are not necessarily filled with the Spirit. So then comes this third question. Well, what are the results of the Holy Spirit's work in me? How do I know that I've been filled with the Spirit? And we use language around here like evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. And there are multiple evidences of the Holy Spirit's presence. Miraculous phenomenon are part of that. There are no miracles without the Holy Spirit. So when someone is healed, when someone speaks in tongues and it's real, uh, the supernatural ability just to speak in another language that you haven't formally learned, uh, those can be evidences of the Holy Spirit's work. But it's interesting when the Bible talks about the actual demonstration of the, the residence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, the proof of his work, uh, that, that's described in terms of fruit more so than gifts. So here's what you need to know at Covenant. At Covenant, we believe that those miraculous gifts that we read about in the book of Acts, that they still happen today. We believe they're given to every generation. They should be encouraged and practiced according to the parameters of Scripture. All right? Now, some of you may go, well, then why don't you have classes about that? Well, because it's not up to us to endow someone with that gift. If the Holy Spirit does that, they don't need any help doing that. Why in the world would anybody need help speaking a language that they haven't previously learned from me? when I don't know that language, all right? And, and so, and I, and I understand if you came out of a tradition where uh, there was come forward and we're gonna help coach you through all of this, uh, listen, we don't, we don't have anything against those folks, but that's not what we do here uh, because honestly, there's just no such experience that we can find in the Bible. When the Holy Spirit decided to do this in someone's life, he just did it. Um, he's not as much of a gentleman as some of the rest of us are. He, he comes into our lives often uninvited. And, and when that happens with regard to, to what's called the charismata, he ends up, uh, someone ends up speaking in tongues. They don't necessarily need our help with that. But this is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. Is there anything wrong with speaking in tongues? No. We would encourage anyone with that gift to exercise it. Only we would tell you, don't let it interrupt a worship service unless you're relatively certain there's going to be an interpreter. Uh, otherwise, it's going to get kind of awkward. But here's the thing. You know, there can be someone who speaks in tongues and then they spew hatred toward other people on social media. They're not walking in the Spirit. Somebody can claim the ability to do miracles, but if they're not kind and loving toward others, they're not walking in the Spirit. 
All right. And, and this subject is incredibly important for that reason. John 14, 12 says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do, all right? We do that by the helper that Jesus sends us. And you can see that in verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 14. So how, how did the early disciples preach with such power and confidence? It was the Holy Spirit. How did the miracles heal the lame and open blind eyes and bring restoration? Well, that, that too was the Holy Spirit. How did uneducated, mostly illiterate fishermen, farmers, shepherds, tax cheats, prostitutes, and rednecks turn the world upside down by the end of the first century? Holy Spirit. And that's how you and I live, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, guys, thanks for joining me for this uh, special edition. Again, we got one more coming to you uh, in just a few days from now on the very, very interesting and controversial subject of Christian nationalism. Uh, so you may want to tune in for that, but may the Lord bless you. Uh, I want to thank you once again, Vince Vaughn and Troy Stangle, uh, for being here in the studio with me, helping us get these, uh, in, get these lessons out. I pray you are blessed by it. Thank these men when you see them on campus for all the work they do. May the Lord bless you, and we'll see you next time. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.